You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the Prime Minister faces incendiary claims about his conduct during the pandemic. The Daily Mail is reporting that Boris Johnson said last year that he would rather see bodies piled high in their thousands than order a third lockdown. Now, Downing Street has strongly denied the claims, while the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, says that the rumours are rubbish. Over half the population have been vaccinated. We're way ahead of our contemporaries around the world. uh, And that is a government-led rollout. The Prime Minister has been personally engaged in it. uh, And, you know, all the who said, what said, what said, you know, I'll I'll leave that to the Oscar uh, gossip columns that are now being rolled out today after the night. Well, the report follows explosive allegations from Johnson's top advisor, formerly Dominic Cummings. Now, in a thousand-word blog, Cummings catalogued a litany of alleged failings and potential rule-breaking by the Prime Minister. It also comes on top of a growing lobbying scandal, with Labour now calling on the government to publish all its communications between ministers and their business contacts. The Shadow Minister, Jess Phillips, has questioned who was given contracts under emergency COVID measures amid concerns about cronyism. Whether I back Dominic Cummings' view or Boris Johnson's view, what what we need is a proper independent inquiry where it isn't about two boys fighting and is about taxpayers in our country. Now, that was Jess Phillips uh, from the Labour Party. Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, faces questions this afternoon about Cummings's claims as uh, he testifies to the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. Simon Case will also be asked about the collapsed lender Greensill Capital's links to the government and the, quote, effectiveness of lobbying rules. Well, joining us now is Simon Hoare, Conservative MP for North Dorset. Simon, thank you so much for being with us again. Um, let's start then with the claims uh, about Boris Johnson's comments ahead of the third lockdown, which uh, were put out in the Daily Mail today. Downing Street, of course, have denied them. Now, of course, neither you nor I uh, know whether the quote is real, but uh, this has come in the normally Boris-supporting Daily Mail and just a couple of weeks before local and regional elections. So it has to be pretty damaging, doesn't it? Well, I don't know, uh, and I wasn't there either. I mean, I I think the one thing that we do need to bear in mind in all of this is that um, of all of the cabinet, I think actually the prime minister 
has had the most precautionary approach to COVID and has, I think, always quite rightly seen it as a public health emergency with other attendant issues which would need to be addressed, economic impact and, and the like. And he then went on to uh, implement actually a very firm and very fixed third lockdown. So, I mean, sort of sitting here in blissful ignorance in a he said, I thought he said, I might have heard, somebody might tell me somewhere, a lot of unnamed sources, etc. I think everybody is in the is in the dark, but I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating. But the Prime Minister led the charge for a third lockdown, and that has clearly had, uh, when viewed alongside the rollout of the vaccine, uh, a very beneficial effect with regards to public health in terms of COVID. Those are, the, those are the facts that we know. Those are the unassailable facts. And I think we're all probably a little better to, to stick to those rather than um, sort of con- conjecture and point scoring and all the rest of it. Critics would say, though, that it took until the third lockdown for the Prime Minister to to um, you know, come out swiftly and more harshly and decisively than previously. Also, I suppose the other question is, I mean, it's an open secret um, that the Prime Minister's initiative to blame Dominic Cummings for the leaking before the third lockdown, um, you know, that that was basically pretty unwise, that it made Dominic Cummings into an even bigger enemy, right? Well, I mean, it is it is peculiar, and I'm no fan of Mr. Cummings. I mean, I was one of the uh, one of the first uh, of, on the Conservative benches to call for him to go uh, at the time of the Barnard Castle um, eye test. But it is peculiar how uh, an individual who has been um, sort of vilified and traduced by so many is now being prayed in aid as the receptacle of all wisdom and knowledge. I mean, you can't have it. I, I mean, commentators. And others, I'm afraid, cannot have it um, both ways. It just, on the general point about the timing and the response to, to issues with regards to, to COVID, it's a boring point, uh, and I think it, it has become more boring as it has gone on. But forgive me, I'm going to make it. But it's this. There was no handbook. There is no handbook for how to deal with the 21st century uh, pandemic. And all countries were trying different ways at different times to protect the public health of their people. We were trying to get hold of PPE. We were trying to get hold of ventilators. We were trying to make sure that there was full oxygen to keep patients alive. We were trying to make sure that there was uh, robustness and headroom and capacity with the NHS to sustain a fairly strong onslaught of demand. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a volume, there wasn't a textbook which prime ministers and presidents around the world could dust down and go, ah, this is how you do it. It was judgment. And I've said all the way along, when we come to review, when we come to write the book of learning to make sure that the next time, on the presumption that there is going to be a next time, uh, things will be dealt with um, in, a, in a better way. Uh, that is the time then to do the autopsy, to pick out the key learnings and to, and to learn the mistakes of the past. But to try and do it in contemporary timing, uh, in the absence, as I say, of, of, a, of a sort of handbook, is, is, is a pretty futile exercise. But, but yes, that many people have sympathy with that, but we'll also say that part of the learning that you're talking about will come from openness. And 
what we've seen so far is uh, a bit of mistiness, really, amidst that people's impression is that perhaps contracts went to friends or relations of senior ministers, uh, that there was something a little bit dodgy going on, there were tax arrangements with big companies like Dyson. Uh, isn't Labour right, really, to say the answer to this is full transparency of business contacts with ministers and that that is going to be the disinfectant in this? Well, we have the Register of Members' uh, interests, and that is very demanding for, for ministers as uh, as well. Um, I don't think there's anything really to see with regards to the to the Dyson thing. I mean, you know, all I know is as, as a constituency member of Parliament, um, we were all being deluged with with our care homes, with with local with our local health CCGs and others saying we're running out of PPE, we're running out of this, we haven't got enough of this, and I and I think the sort of the, the calm after the storm often makes us forget the absolute maelstrom that that storm was round about this time last year. But as a general point, Roger, I I entirely agree. Um, Governments should be um, rather like Caesar's wife, um, beyond and above reproach. And um, uh, sunshine, and and, and, uh, as we know, the best uh, disinfectant. I do think... And I hope that this doesn't sound either uh, completely naive. I think that actually when you look around the world, when you look at different regimes and different countries and different governments, we have a free press, we have an independent uh, judiciary, uh, we have an, an open democratic House of Commons, uh, we have things like the registers of members' interests, etc. Uh, we have a pretty clean, a pretty clean way of dealing with and delivering government and governance in this country. That's not to say it's perfect. That's not to say that there won't be uh, mistakes and, and all the rest of it down the line. But in broad terms, this is not a resting on your laurels point, but in broad terms, I think we have a robust, clean, clear, transparent system of government. Okay, Simon, I want to talk about another issue, Northern Ireland, uh, where the matter is much more difficult. Um, Do you have any hope that the protocol issue can actually be resolved? Well, it is being resolved um, as a a present continuous. We heard, um, as you know, I chair the Select Committee in the House of Commons, we heard evidence from uh, the people who are dealing with the with the trusted uh, trusted traders scheme and, and the trader support scheme uh, over the last few weeks, and all of the evidence is saying that volumes of trade and the flow of trade and the smoothness of trade is returning to uh, sort of pre-exit uh, levels. The stockpiling, which had amounted, which had taken place uh, late autumn, early winter, has now been. Uh, effectively sold and and got rid of. So orders are now coming in in in, in real time. I think the EU and Lord Frost are uh, uh, together with, and I carved Dublin out as a separate, even though, of course, it it sits under the the umbrella of the EU. I think those sort of three points of the triangle are fully appraised of the need to make sure that the protocol is working and is working smoothly. and, And again, without sounding either naive or complacent, All of the evidence that I'm seeing, all of the evidence that my committee is hearing, suggests that everything is pointing in the right direction. We're not there yet, but we've moved very quickly 
in four months, which if you consider after 40 years of seamless frictionless trade, um, is, I think, not too bad. Uh, very briefly, Woodsum, because we're running out of time, in terms of the yep. post office scandal, uh, the cancelling of the uh, mm-hmm. convictions of a number of, of postmaster, postmistresses, is it now time to have a judge-led inquiry to get to the root of this? Yes, I do, but I think we could probably bypass it, um, because I think the basic problem with this is um, that the post office believed that IT and technology could never be wrong, and everything had to be down to either human error or criminality. And I just hope that a broader learning has gone out to the corporate world that as important as IT and digital is, it isn't always foolproof. And uh, one should just be very careful because lives... I've had Mm. two constituents of mine who've been involved with this. Lives have been turned upside down. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics at the moment. And we start, Caroline, with vaccines. Yes, a billion of them. A billion coronavirus jabs have now been given in 172 countries. That's according to Bloomberg's vaccine tracker. And that includes more than half of the population here in the UK who've now received their first dose. And from today, Roger, anyone aged 44 and over is being invited to book a jab. Well, sadly, because of my age, I have long been done, but um, it certainly opens up vistas for other people. Uh, Meanwhile, in Scotland, pretty big day. People are allowed now to go shopping, work out in a gym, visit a museum, enjoy a drink in a pub or a restaurant. The nation is moving from level four to level three restrictions. And the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says the easing of the restrictions are only possible because of falling cases. But she is warning the virus hasn't magically gone away. If you're in any doubt about anything I'm saying here, just turn on your television or, or go on to the internet and look at India, look at France, look at many other parts of the world right now, Canada, uh, where things are going in the wrong direction again. So that's what we've got to guard against. Well, up to 50 people are now going to be able to attend funerals and weddings. And it's a similar picture in Wales today because pubs, cafes and restaurants can reopen to customers outdoors. Up to six people from six different households will be able to meet up with social distancing and hygiene measures in place. And outdoor attractions in Wales, such as zoos and theme parks, can also reopen alongside organised outdoor activities, such as sports clubs, limited to 30 people. So reopening really across the UK, including in Wales. 
Meanwhile, is the economy reopening? Well, it's set to grow at its fastest rate on record this year. The EY Item Club has upgraded its 2021 growth forecast from 5% to 6.8%, which would mark the fastest rate since 1973. The vaccine rollout and relaxed restrictions have helped the recovery, EY says. They expect that the UK economy is going to return to its pre-pandemic size in the second quarter of 2022. Now, that's three months earlier than it had previously forecast. Now, that sort of growth may be a problem for our next guest. Everything that has gone before, be it nation, state, war, scientific or medical advance, all of it came during a period of global stability. And that is now over, according to our next guest. Ours is the age of environmental breakdown. It's the opening gambit from a new book, Planet on Fire. It makes the case for radical action when it comes to climate change and what that could look like, because the situation on planet Earth is far more serious than people realise. Joining us now is the co-author of Planet on Fire, Laurie Laybourne Langton. Laurie, thank you so much for being with us. Well, if you were somebody who wasn't already worried about the planet, this book will certainly make your hair stand on end. It is apocalyptic stuff. Western democracies essentially need dismantling to effectively deal with climate change. That seems to be the argument from your book. Explain. Well, we, we definitely wouldn't be calling for uh, the dismantling of Western democracies. W- what we're saying is that the kind of changes that we need um, to respond to the kind of problem that we're faced with are of a level that we're just not necessarily having as a part of our mainstream political debate, uh, as m- even after the last couple of years of big changes in the way that we're starting to conceive of the environmental situation. And when it comes to the problem, we'll, we'll talk about some of our proposals for solutions in a minute, but... With the problem, the reason why we use this phrase environmental breakdown instead of, say, climate change is because those two words, climate and change, we don't think really give you a proper idea of the problem that we face. So climate, for example, the climate crisis, as some are calling it now, is only one part of the problem. Soils are being depleted, species are being made extinct, and some of the other big cycles like the nitrogen cycle that keep life on Earth going have been have been very badly damaged. And that brings us on to the second word, change. That's too benign compared to what we're facing here. The changes that we're seeing are greater than at any point in human history, and in some cases at any point in the last millions, many millions or even billions of years. And that's why we this phrase environmental breakdown, others use different phrases like environment or other things, more uh, accurate to describe the kind of situation that we're in, which, you know, we're not saying anything that's necessarily new compared to what a number of campaigners have said in, and, and scientists and others in the last few years. We're just mm. trying to work with different ways of language to make sure it's really apparent. Yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose then the point that, that some people bring up, they say there are must be ways to deal with this. One of them they anticipate would be technology able to rid mm. the world of CO2 and therefore potentially turn around the, the, the issue. But you don't buy that. Well, that, that's, a, that's an absolutely core cool part of the strategy. Uh, and, and let me for a moment um, sort of characterise that as a strategy of, of trying to swap the dirty technologies that we have, say diesel cars or, or coal power plants, for clean alternatives. And to ensure that we've got the market conditions primarily to be able to do that as fast as possible. That is absolutely right that it's a key part of the strategy. One of the points that we're saying is that in addition to that, as a complement to that, we need to be looking at, at deeper changes to some of our economic structures, if not just to hedge our bets 
because that strategy could come up against a number of major barriers. One of which, for example, is that this isn't just that climate crisis, as I was saying. And we have to ask ourselves a big question as to, do we have enough of an environmental budget? Do we have enough environmental room, enough emissions to emit, enough soils to continue to deplete, enough habitats to be tearing down, to swap all the dirty stuff for the clean stuff that already exists and all the other stuff that we're going to create as the world hopefully becomes wealthier? And there are serious questions over that strategy as to whether we definitely will be able to do that. And so what we're saying is that as, a, as an, an addition, as a complement to what is already being done, we need some deeper structural changes as well. And they're not hmm. getting rid of democracy or, or getting rid of, you know, no. massive radical changes like that. They're, they're a complementary addition. But, but you are talking about blaming contemporary capitalism, the for-profit corporation, for the fact that we're not moving quickly enough and that that needs to be seriously addressed. Uh, yeah, and I think that the, it, it, it's unremarkable, particularly when we look at, say, fossil fuel companies, to understand that the way that they are behaving and the incentives that they face is leading us into this situation. And you can say that uh, in a very sober way, in a very angry way that you're seeing from campaigners as well. It, it, it's just the reality that we're faced with at the moment. What we're saying is that you've got to, in addition to helping or, or urging those companies to swap that for dirty for clean as quick as possible, we may also have to make certain change to how those companies operate as quickly as possible. And this is where we have to remember the perilous situation that we find ourselves in. If you look at any of those graphs that are provided by scientists uh, that show us the emissions reductions that we need to have a shot of avoiding, and this is not hyperbole, globally catastrophic conditions, this is just the sober words of scientists, will be reducing emissions at a rate that is, that is unprecedented well, and men, in an order of magnitude above what's already been considered at the moment. Uh, it doesn't mean abolishing private companies. It means cha- but basically implementing some of the changes to how corporate governance work, for example, that are increasingly becoming something that the mainstream is considering. Yeah, we're, we're, we're talking in sort of generality, but eco-socialism, if we can call it that, I suppose, um, as the way forward, what does it actually mean? What does it, you know, what in detail would happen? What would need to happen? Well, I think, and I'll come back to the word in a minute because I think there's a good point to be made about that. But we need a situation where the lodestar of, of the of the economic imaginary, particularly maximisation of GDP, is shifted. This is something that many countries are talking about and experimenting with. That we actually start to shift the overall metrics for the kind of progress that we see in society, looking at a wider basket, including, of course, environmental factors and a wider picture of, of well-being. Underneath that, you need to ensure that public financing, particularly for investment, is increased markedly. We're starting to see a shift towards that in the US and the Biden administration, but that needs to be something that's replicated throughout countries around the world. And, of course, we have a fantastic opportunity to be doing that in the context of recovering from the pandemic. And then we also need to be implementing the kind of social structures that provide an ability for us to break this linkage, which we see reproduced around the world, where we produce certain social standards of, of nutrition and other factors behind well-being and the impact upon the environment. And at the moment, the more you reach those objectives socially, the more the environment is being impacted. And some of some Western countries that we often associate with being cleaner, actually, when you look at the data, are much more destructive. Yeah. And that means that we need to break this this focus on on material consumption as the pure heart of what we're doing beyond a certain point. Now, it doesn't mean hair shirts for everyone and 
you know, one going around and eating granola, all those kind of cliches. It means that at the heart of it, to be honest, being able to do what many of us had the ability to realise during the pandemic, which is that being sociable, having well-built cities that aren't overcrowded and full of air pollution, that at the end of the day is what we need to get from society. And it's those kind of changes that we need to... This is not... A, this is, I think, a, a vision of society that actually people are starting to cohere around. And that's why the phrase that you mentioned, eco-socialism, we talk about a number of phrases in the book and say, well, we're not sure what this is called yet. And it, it's important to understand that people are talking about this from enough a different from a, a range of different angles. And they call it something different, dependent on what sector they're in. The healthcare sector, for example, talks a lot about the social determinants of health, the causes of the causes of things like obesity and other major problems that societies face. And they talk about how we can replan societies to ensure that we we deal with those problems upstream. And as we say in the book, that itself is, they have different words, but they're heading towards that similar direction. We see that in yeah. all other sectors as well. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.